Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the managing director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Welcome everybody to this latest episode of Edge. Edge Profiles today, Jane Moritz. Jane is a dear friend of mine, uh, one of Australia's, in my terms, leading uh, innovators in terms of rural and regional approaches to leadership, community developments. Somebody who exemplifies what Edge is all about, who takes on issues uh, and causes uh, for the better of community not for herself, but the better of others. So today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Jane to EDGE. Welcome, Jane. Well, thank you, Steve. Jane, take us back to the young Jane Moritz growing up in uh, Western Australia. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Steve, I was Jane Langley. In fact, I was Dallas Jane Langley. Um, my mother had given me a name that I decided I didn't like when I was all of six. So I changed it to Jane. I grew up in Nyabing, a small rural community in the great southern of Western Australia. And I just remember having a really happy, solid family life. Nobody in our community had money, but we always had food on the table and we always had lovely clothes. And um, I remember my parents being very community-minded and involved in community. Mum helped build the church. Dad was in the football club and ran the sportsman's club and the, the ag show and it was just a wonderful life. Siblings that were competitive but oh, younger than me so I was the eldest and so really my values started there. My values I think are com- rural communities, agriculture, family, they're my values, the things I, I think are most important in life to me. So a little niabing. <laughs> I was really amazed at the primary school I went there and obviously the teachers were all new graduates and with only one exception, each of those teachers made a wonderful mark on me. There were creative teachers, drama teachers, experimental, innovative teachers, and I just loved learning under those people and became a very much a conscientious student and a lover of education and learning right in those early days, a thirst for learning. I remember doing lots of projects. Uh, This is before internet and websites, of course, and I'd write to the United Nations, to UNESCO, to the World Health Organization and get information and then do up a project of my own accord. And um, mum must have subscribed to the Reader's Digest and they sent out charts with all the flags of the world and I learnt every flag for every country and uh, I learnt all the prime ministers of every country and This is before I understood about politics. I thought they were the prime ministers forever, of course, but no, truly, uh, growing up in regional Western Australia was a privilege. You've always valued learning and you're very good at it and you model this whole notion of lifelong learning to somebody who's continued to uh, amaze in terms of a thirst for 
inquiry uh, first for saying yeah, I can do it and, it's, you know, I can contribute. Let us take you into some of these key thematics as a part of your uh, contribution, which is a sense of community. I guess uh, knowing you has been a great pleasure uh, for me and what you've done for others. Uh, one of the things is about your most recent work, which has been the chair of the Albany Hospice, you know, voluntary assistant dying. And uh, how did you find yourself there? Yeah, well, I didn't even know in 2015 when a colleague from Australian Rural Leadership Program from South Australia had been the acting chair of the Albany Community Hospice, she um, came to me and she said, would you take on being the chair? I have to go back to South Australia. And at that particular time, I'd just moved to Albany after 40 years in the community of Hyden. And Albany was a city, is a city in Western Australia. And I had gone through a marriage breakdown. So I was in a very poor place in my leaderful life. I was at the lowest ebb of my life. And I said, no, I can't do this. And it's rare for me to say, no, you would know that. Uh, however, uh, she persisted. And over three months, I started going to their board meetings as an observer. And I still felt as someone from a little country town, I couldn't go on and be the chair of this big organisation in, in a city. So I said, well, look, if there's no one by the AGM, I'll take it on. And so come November that year, I had come to understand that palliative care was looking after people, giving them quality of life and choice at the end of their life. Um, I took on the chair of Albany Community Hospice. Now, this was a special place, and it is a special place in Albany. It is the only privately owned, community owned private hospital, hospice in Western Australia. Um, it's been going over 30 years. We had the 30th celebrations several years ago, and it was built by the community, for the community. And people love it. I had no concept when I took on the role of chair of how much it meant to the Albany community and what a privilege it was to take on chair of such an organisation. I feel really humbled by it now. However, I took it on and learning on the job, my goodness, it was, it's, you talk about lifelong learning. I had to pedal, you know, like a duck. My feet were paddling underwater. Our first thing was to move from an old hospice of four beds to a new eight-bed modern facility, $6 million facility, have the opening, uh, transition the staff and the patients. Then we had lots of governance issues to deal with. We'd had to go to a higher level of governance, um, a higher level of accreditation. The private hospital national health accreditation is so rigorous. So I learned all kinds of things that after 40 years in a farming rural community, I never knew I would be going to learn. We did part of constitutional change, of course, as one does. And one of the things was making sure that no one could be the chair for 10 years or get tired because that had happened in a previous part of the hospice's life. Anyway, uh, two, three-year terms is the limit. So in my fifth year, the West Australian government, in their wisdom, determined that people could choose to die of their own accord in Western Australia if they met a lot of rigorous requirements. Now, I immediately recognised that for Albany Community Hospice, that was a big change point in our community. We as a board had to decide, would our hospice be a place where voluntary assisted dying could happen? And the government gave an 18-month implementation period. So in that time... 
we all started with our own personal views and I had a personal view having lost my father in terrible circumstances after a seven-year coma so I had a personal view but we had to put those aside and we had to research we researched what had happened in Canada what happens in the Netherlands what happened in Victoria because voluntary assisted dying was introduced there 12 months earlier and Everywhere we found that people had trouble making this decision. We also found out that the bigger hospices in Western Australia, all religiously oriented, uh, had all said no to voluntary assisted dying, which made our decision even more poignant because it might mean we were the only place, the go-to place in Western Australia, and we didn't want it to be that. We wanted our hospice always to be a place where everyone feels safe. They didn't feel they were going there because that was where voluntary assisted dying happened. So we did a lot of research. We got a UWA um, authorised research project set up. We consulted with the community through this research project. Uh, we got people's opinions. We researched and surveyed our staff. We had tears, we had very frank board meetings and in February this year we determined that yes we would allow voluntary assisted dying in our hospice and on the 30th of June we had all the implementation processes in place and the community came with us which was amazing because we knew that 50% of the community were opposed to voluntary assisted dying. And we, as a hospice in Albany, were concerned that our community came with us, whatever their points of view and their ethics. And also because from a pragmatic point of view, we have to raise $300,000 a year in our community. So if you've got people against you, you can't have that. But what was interesting, Steve, was that we looked at our mission and our hospice values because we in our strategic plan, it says that we will be a place where people have choice and quality of life to the end of their life. So it was this fact of allowing people that choice at the end of their life. We just decided that voluntary assisted dying was another arm in our whole plate of offers that we have at hospice. All of the services that we offer, the loving kindness, the professional care, all of those things we were just adding an additional aspect. And uh, I believe we are the only place in Western Australia outside of the public health system where voluntary assisted dying is supported at this stage. And so the community you said came with you and the reaction, uh, continually measuring community sentiment? It's been a very smooth transition. Now, I retired as chair on the 30th of June because my time was nearly up. But I had gone to the founding priest who founded hospice as part of our research and asked him what he thought because I thought he, of all people, Father Hugh Galliner, would know what was Father Hugh Galloway, I beg your pardon, he would have an, a view of whether we were still meeting what hospice was supposed to mean. And he said, you know, Religion can be a fool at times. It is so important that you look after what your patients, your guests' needs are. So that's what we did. We've gone with what our guests want and need. And the community has supported us. It's been very quiet. We haven't made a song and dance about it. We've done it very quietly, discreetly, but the option is there. Uh, 
That's wonderful and true to who you are, uh, taking on those um, big issues and navigating them through some potentially interesting waters, uh, metaphorically. Yeah, it was a big issue, Steve, because, you know, the doctors and nurses have the biggest role in this, not the board, and we had to be sure that there were sufficient doctors who were comfortable. And one of the other things, as a board, we didn't come to a unanimous decision, but it was so wonderful that we could all respect the honesty of each other's decision and choice in, in opinion. And I think my learning from all of this is that the more you listen the more you allow and trust people to say what they need to say, help them grow with their thinking. We, we actually evolved to our decision. Three months beforehand, I thought our decision would be, no, we can't do this. But we naturally evolved to a decision by coming together as a board and the teammanship, the, the camaraderie, the trust in that team at the time of my departure after making this decision I hold it like a precious baby it was just such a lovely feeling I felt that we had grown something as a board and oh here we are doing something in a very unromantic uh, you know a, a funny setup it, it's palliative care isn't a pretty thing but it's an amazing thing it, it's a precious time when people are dying and we we took it with us as a board and did it well. Jane, you're always, as I said previously, somebody who takes um, on the issues and for not only uh, it's for a better uh, common good, I guess, in the community. Let me take you back to that special community that is hiding uh, 40 years when a young Jane Moritz arrived there. I've had the pleasure of both going to Hyden and also visiting the hospice in two different parts to 40 years, but... What were the community challenges of Hyden uh, in terms of bringing people together, uh, seeing something different, um, a question of sustainability, taking people along the journey? What happened in Hyden in terms of your own leadership and contribution? Well, I went there as a child bride, 18, married my first boyfriend and was very much in love and we went farming on his parents' farm and the community actually helped me grow up. Most of my growing up I did in that community, but people were very forgiving. I know one of my first community roles was uh, secretary for the cricket club and uh, I'd never even been at a meeting where you moved and seconded minutes before that. And so here I am writing what they move, a, mission, a move a motion. I couldn't believe all these things. So it was a very naive way to start. But And then I took on, had all the money for the cricket club and I'd put it in the bank each week after the barbecue or buying the club team hats or whatever but I never knew about doing a financial statement and just before the first AGM the president of the club said to me uh, so how's the finances have you got the financial statement ready and I said oh I've got banked all the money what do you mean <laughs> you better come and have a coffee with Val and I bring the baby because I had a baby by this stage so I go to John and Val's and they sit me down and we actually created a financial statement for the whole year and they never once made me feel like I'd made a mistake, that I'd done anything wrong, and it just went through the meeting. And, you know, they could have told me off. It could have been a really awkward situation, but it wasn't. And, of course, I went on to being secretaries, treasurers, chairs of many organisations after that. But I just think that forgiveness was amazing. So um, in Hyde, mm. 
We had a progress association. We're a small community in the eastern wheat belt. It's where Wave Rock is, and there's a lot of tourism, but uh, the community struggled agriculturally. We're a marginal area. We needed things that the government was never going to give us. We didn't have local government in our town. It was in a neighbouring town, and there's all that rivalry that goes with that. So as a progress association, we were a do-it-yourself group. We um, formed the Hyden Business Development Company, which is a group of 23 farmers that put in $10,000 each to help bring businesses to town. And we brought in a plumber, an electrician, set up a metal fabricator, built some houses. Uh, and that business is still going today. And that's the thing I really love about being involved in projects. I was active the inaugural secretary and did the role for 19 years, I think. And, and played a lead role in that group. But what I'm proud of is that the group now has hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're investing in the Hyden community. They have a new chair. Some shareholders have left, but it's continuing. So it's part of that setting up the community organisation. Another one was building housing for young single people. We had um, young women that were farmers' daughters and they were travelling 30 or 40 k's morning and night to work shifts at the hotel. And there's kangaroos, there's car accidents. They needed to live in town. And they also needed some independence from mum and dad and off the farm. So we arranged a grant and built six young singles home units. But part of getting the grant of 450,000 was ensuring that the young singles were involved in the management of the units. So this meant having to teach young people, mentor young people into holding meetings and and writing records of their who they put into units and things. So that was a really wonderful project. And, in fact, we then went on to build, I think there's now 14 units in Hyden and they generally have 100% occupancy. And when you think how many young people that means want to live in a town, I think that's pretty significant. So let me take you to these are just skimming across many of their significant contributions you made, Jane, suicide prevention in Indigenous uh, communities, um, another fascinating piece of work. Well, it really was a big learning for me. In 1997, I lost a brother to suicide and um, it just broke our family. It was so sad. Nothing was expected. However, out of our grief, I did some research and I found out about the Yellow Ribbon Project. I found out how people can become depressed and the stigma around it. So many people had come up to me in my community when I had said my brother died by suicide and said, oh, our boy had a car accident, but we know it was suicide. Uh, the priest at our local church cried. Here I am going to church because I was grieving. And he hugged me and cried and said, my son, he suicided. It just came out of the woodwork. So I realised there was a big gap and I did a lot of research in, as part of my grief recovery. And lo and behold, if 12 months later, a beautiful young man in our town died. And, of course, I became a go-to person and could help the community understand it, bring in supporters. Um, it was a very torrid time for the community and it, it wasn't the only one. It's happened since. It happens in many rural communities, sadly. However, there was another stage of my life not many years later, where I was quite politically motivated and involved with the Liberal Party, aiming to be a politician, which I've never been able to achieve, but that's okay. 
the learning there. But one of the contacts I made was the West Australian Minister for Mental Health at the time, Helen Morton. And she had set up this amazing One Life Suicide Prevention Program. Yet it was not getting to the regions. And so she asked me, even though I was a full-time farmer and full-time community builder and mother of four and grandparent by that time, if I would take on this work at One Life Suicide Prevention. Well, I just fell into it. I loved it. I took people like Heath Black, uh, Glenn Mitchell, a renowned sports commentator, Amy Coombs, a young woman with bulimia, uh, some other amazingly inspirational people who had nearly died by their own misdemeanours due to mental health issues and took them to community. And in every community, we must have gone to 200 communities um, over three years, um, and they just connected with people. There was never a community meeting where we didn't have someone come and disclose that they needed help, and we were able to get them on the right track. Um, in many cases, maybe not every case, one would never know. And Steve, as part of that, apart from the fact that I was going to communities from Kalgoorlie to Geraldton to Albany to Esperance, everywhere in between, I also realised that nothing was happening in the mental health for Aboriginal people. I worked with Wheatbelt Aboriginal Mental Health. They had designed a program called Staying Solid and Safe, and it was a yarning program. And so I got the funds through Helen Morton's office, through um, the Mental Health Commission, and we took that out to the Aboriginal communities, to the Indigenous communities. Oh, it was fantastic. We had yarning sessions. We had camps. It was just the most amazing cultural experience for me, but a human experience on every level. So that I did for three and a half years, and you might hear a bit of frustration now. The government changed, the funding stopped, and this wonderful program came to an end. But I know it made a difference, and I know there are good programs again now, but I do know that communities are cynical, that things come and then they go. And if only we could keep some of that sustainably happening through other systems that are not all government-based, it would be wonderful. Take us now in your own uh, backyard, uh, Albany, Middleton Beach. Um, once again, an opportunity, you saw a need. Middleton Beach uh, Association, another great case study of uh, community leadership. Tell us a little bit about that, Jane. Uh, the Middleton Beach Group, yes. Well, in 2004, my ex-husband and I had bought a little place at Albany on Middleton Beach, just a beautiful little place to go for holidays because in our farm business it was so intense. We had a feedlot, we had broadacre crops, we had 10 employees, we had value-adding businesses. We were exhausted, running on empty a lot, and we found this little nook at Middleton Beach where we could go to have holidays, little breaks. And in uh, owning this little unit, I got to go for coffee and a few things and I just felt there was nothing community. I wasn't getting a sense of community. So I bumped into a wonderful man. He's an author now, John Doust. If you want to read a good book, read Bird on, Boy on a Wire. Anyway, I bumped into John Doust, a friend of mine, and I said, John, there's nothing, I don't know what's happening for community here. He said, no, he said, we should do something. So between us, we held a community meeting with all these people I'd never met in my life before. And hey, presto, the Middleton Beach Group was formed. 
And it wasn't long before we became the go-to group for the City of Albany when they wanted consultation about things happening at Middleton Beach. We were able to get an entry statement for the precinct. Um, we did, you know, clean-ups. We got some beautiful art sculptures down on the beachfront. And we just created this sense of community and we'd have social outings once every two or three months as well. Um, and it just became quite a good, strong community-based group. And what was nice was two years ago, I think I was chair for 11 or 12 years, I decided it was time to retire from that role and it's still going. The secretary who'd done it with me for 11 years as well, we both retired, introduced new people and the group's still going and serving a useful purpose in the Albany community. So I think the important thing is that get a little group of people together, anything can happen. You know, one person on their own can't do much. But if you work with others, if you look at people without judgment and think, what can you give? What would you like to give? Hear their story. You just come up with amazing achievements. It's no man's an island and we get what we get when we work together. So that's a great segue to your notions of leadership. I mean, we've positioned this and broadly community leadership, but you're a fine, outstanding leader, Jane. Um, I've got to connect you through Australian Rural Leaders and you're well-known, you're a great uh, leader. What's, what do you think good leaders do or represent? What are the dispositions that good leaders have? Well, for me, it's about loving people. I know that I love people. Um, I certainly need time on my own, but I do... I, I get my energy and I have a lot of energy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a bit scary sometimes. But, you know, if you put energy to good cause, it's, that's the way. So I think you need to listen. You need to be prepared to try things, to make mistakes. My goodness, I've made some mistakes in, in some of my leadership. And I look back and I cringe, you know, trying to push a community to get a, a youth place without aiming for a win-win situation. There's so many things I didn't do the right way. I would challenge people uh, who were I saw as adversaries rather than try and find what they were looking for and working with them. I think um, you need to be forgiving of yourself, uh, and I, I am now in my old age, uh, not old age, you know, mid-age, and, and have some trust, trust in your abilities to, to get things done. If you keep working at it, nothing happens in a straight line. It all happens by little jagged steps or going sometimes in a circle. So uh, it, it just amazes me how much you can achieve if you bring people together and use everyone as a resource. Yeah, there's other things about leadership that I... I think don't strive for perfection. I, you know, as a child, I know I stro strove to be perfect and it puts so much pressure on yourself. You can achieve something that's 80% and it'll be amazing and someone else might put that 20% on the top afterwards and ensure that that's what happens. So I think that um, the other thing is you've got to know yourself and your faults and you need to know what you're good at. I'm a big picture thinker. And I used to find that bureaucracy and the detail would drive me undone. So I certainly needed to bring in resources and to encourage people to support me who could do the detail. 
So there's some of my learnings from leadership. Very powerful. I love the piece where a colleague of mine has written a book called Imperfect Leadership, getting it 80% right and allowing somebody for the 20% to put the other on top. And I think that's a fantastic way that um, we are formed but never formed perfectly and there's always something new to learn. Just this other thematic that we've talked about today from your observation, we're in extremely high-pressure time with COVID and communities and state boundaries and a whole sense of that. And it's a really extreme, a a once-in-a-century situation or more. But what's your sense of community? Is a community divided? Are there so many good people out there? And equally, what do you see some of the challenges or opportunities when you look across communities, a catch-all term, but I know there are many communities. So what's your observation, comments, Jane? I am concerned that there are people advocating for not becoming immunised, and I've seen it become a little bit divisive in both the Albany and the Hyden community. I have seen that and I'm hoping that as Australians, we, if nothing else, we do it for Australia. So that would be the surprising negative that I've seen come out of COVID, out of immunisation. It does distress me that I have all these wonderful grandchildren who've been, their schooling and socialisation has been compromised by COVID restrictions. Um, And it distresses me to see families that are separated from one state to another. I'm so fortunate that all of my 12 grandchildren are here in Western Australia and three of my four grown-up children are here in Western Australia. So aside from the three months that Western Australia had a regional lockdown, I have still been able to connect and support my families. But I do feel for the young mums that haven't got their support base and I'm hoping that this community is filling the role. I know that in Middleton Beach, we immediately found a way of buddying up with older people that were on their own and being their family member if they didn't have a family member. I personally started a newspaper delivery service to anyone over 70 early in the morning. So that was my morning walk with papers. And that was wonderful because I, even though I was only talking to them on the phone, I got to know some older people that I didn't know And they've stayed connected to me since. And I saw the local shop become really critical. It just opened for takeaway coffee and for newspapers, but it became a focal centre where people could leave things. It was really important. And we gave them an award um, after the shutdown. So I think that's important. I just hope that we all come out of this healthier, more forgiving and, and more caring for each other. I'm sure that there's a message in this COVID and it has to be about that, about community care. And to an extent, simplifying, um, dumbing down life so that we don't have to be at everything all the time. It's so wonderful in my eyes to see that dads can be stay-at-home dads, you know, or mums. It can be stay-at-home mums, work at home, but be at home as well and absolutely have a little bit more quality time with the children, even though they mightn't feel it's very quality sometimes. So it's been a very stressful time for families. I know that. Um, not so much for me because, because the West Australian situation has been a better one. COVID aside, Jane, so just looking at our wonderful country, looking across the country, 
there are some challenges for us all and uh, there are some really good things we do. So as a social community person and commentary, just what are a couple of things you think we really together we need to continue to look at, embrace and to look at and examine our identity as Australians? Well, I mentioned briefly that I had a little go at politics and I, I always believed I would be a senator for Western Australia and I just could not get pre-selected. And it's coming to a head again now in Western Australia particularly that um, there are no women. The party's down to three or four elected members, you know. Um, so in politics particularly, I think party politics is, can be an ugly beast. Um, there has been corruption that's been allowed to happen. I've seen it happen. There's jobs for the mates or the boys. That just has to go. We cannot tolerate that. We are not going to have good government while that is happening. Uh, there's some wonderful people who are politicians and I applaud them, but they are fighting a battle against those that are less wonderful. So for me, the political system is one that must be changed from the bottom up. The other one is valuing agriculture and not persecuting farmers who are really doing a damn good job of producing food at the best, the best way they can. Certainly there have been some things that have been exposed by groups like Peter and that have helped, like Mulesing's now done with um, anaesthetic and, and, you know, there's improvements can always be made in agriculture. But I know that farmers are stewards for their land. They're doing their darndest to look after their land, um, to fix up erosion, to grow crops in the cleanest possible way. People go for organics, but, you know, an organic crop might be spreading weed seeds all over the country. It might mean that you're eating sheep meat that's from sheep that have been lousy and not been able to be um, have a clean fleece. We need to be more educated in terms of agriculture and to let farmers do a good job with the resources that they now have, which are very modern professional resources. So I'd like people to value agriculture and to value what they pay for food. That's a bit diverse, isn't it, Steve? No, fantastic. Um, just drawing to the podcast and to close, my last question is what next for Jay Moritz? What do you want to do? Well, I didn't mention that after my marriage breakdown, I actually did a uni degree, my first one in life, and I've got a Bachelor of Commerce, which I'm proud of, and I'm actually lecturing in agribusiness at TAFE a couple of days a week if there are students wanting it, succession in agribusiness. I've got a lovely new partner whom I love dearly and he loves me, which is special. I, I need to be cherished. I'm not a person who wants to live on their own for the rest of her life. And we have a new place in a new community near Albany. I'm looking forward to that life, but I'm hoping I might help other communities who want to get a hospice. The Albany Community Hospice has offered that I can use all of their intelligence, all of their resources, if there are communities that would like to have a hospice. And I know that dying happens in every community. So there's a very important place for hospice if the community can raise the funds and get the politics to work. And I'd also love to help in family and business succession in some way or other. 
my own family as well as other families. Well, you did say, uh, and I know you've got a boundless energy. That will continue and you'll continue to make a difference. You've got my vote any day of the week, you know that, and uh, so many other people have been uh, fortunate to have you in their lives, both as a friend and a significant mentor. Uh, your contributions are significant. The legacy piece, when I talk to leaders, is important. The first day should be your last day. What What are you leaving behind and what are you contributing beyond self? And uh, that selflessness is so strong. I really want to commend you, Jane, for the work you've done and the difference you've made in my life and uh, so many others uh, at an individual and community level. So, Jane Marich. Thank you for your contribution to Edge and I'm sure people will find your story fascinating. Oh, thank you, Steve. I love Edge. I've just been introduced to it and I'm really enjoying listening to your other champions as well. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of Edge.